0: I'm Corey Poor. This is my better half, Amy, and we will be married two years now. in uh, In June of 2011. Well, I'm Carrie Stein, and I'm Julie Stein. Um, we've been married how many years? 23. 23 years. It was pretty much like high by for weeks and weeks, and. Then all of a sudden, one day, the first time we actually got into a conversation bigger than, hi, how you doing, how's the weather, he asked for my phone number. And then I got a phone call on the way home. Might have been a little too soon. From across the lunchroom, I saw her, and I just like love at first sight. She was like an angel across the lunchroom. Well actually, we did meet when we were sophomores, but I dated someone else the first year I was there. Carrie was too scared to ask me, I guess. We just kind of, we'd been dating so long for eight years, we just decided we either had to break up or get married. That was our choice, so we got married. <laughs> so we chose the second one. It, it turned out pretty well. Yeah, yeah. It works. We took a walk down through the plaza and the, the big water fountain right in the middle of the plaza. Um, I got down on one knee in front of a pretty good sized crowd of people. And it wasn't that big. It, it was a lot of people for me and asked her to marry me. Um, on our wedding day, um, I had this stool made so that I could stand on it um, when we kissed because Kerry is so tall and I am so short. Sure. He's like a foot and four inches taller than I am. I think if I could give one piece of advice to uh, to, to young people thinking about getting married, find somebody who believes the same things you believe. Everything else will fall into place. And it's awesome if he waters your plants and mows the lawn. Hey, good morning, and uh, in line with what Jonathan said, happy Mother's Day to all your moms and grandmothers out here today. We really appreciate you being here, and especially in this particular service, among the four it's probably the fullest, and so thanks for all the difficulty you went through parking, checking in your kids, and finding a seat today. It really means a lot to us, and could I just say, if, if it ever gets to be too much of a hassle to attend this service, we have a fourth service Uh, our our newest service is the late service on Saturday night. It's not quite as crowded. So if you ever get tired of all the difficulty, you might move to that. All four of our services are the same, theoretically. Uh, We intend for them to be the same anyway. And so we want to encourage you to just please keep coming and enjoying New Spring. Right now, we're in a series of talks called Vows. And what got me thinking about this series is 33 years of pastoring. I've, I've stood before hundreds of couples in various locations, in churches and parks and you know auditoriums and buildings of all kinds homes and and I've 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 conducted weddings and one of the things that I've discovered is that couples tend to prepare for just about everything except the vows you know they'll prepare for the cake and the you know the, the attendance and of course the dress and the flowers and all that kind of thing and, and and sometimes the last thing that people think about is the fact that they are making a covenant before God Marriage is not a contract. I remember if you, some of you, if if I married you many years ago, back in the day when I used to do premarital counseling, I used to do a um, a curriculum. And the very first first curriculum, first installment of the curriculum, there was a question that was asked: Is marriage a contract? And and I used to really enjoy that first night of premarital counseling because. You know the prospective bride would come in, and she'd be all over it, because you know women tend to be more in tune to relationships and relationship development. So you know most of the time the the bride would be coming in. She was excited about this. This is an opportunity to, you know, to deepen the relationship. The prospective groom would come in looking like a deer caught in the headlights, and you know he doesn't know what he's going to encounter, and he's just sitting over there in terror. You know, eyes looking at me like, what is next? And so I would have a little fun with prospective grooms with that first question. And, and again, the question is, is marriage a contract? No, it's a covenant. The word covenant means to cut. It's a solemn vow. Covenant is an agreement between two parties, the terms of which could never be altered. It could either be accepted or rejected. Um, but I would, I would ask the groom, is marriage a contract? And I would say, here's the deal. It's not with your, your wife. You're going to make a covenant with her, but I'm going to make you sign a contract with me. And back in the day, we were at the old location, we were building this campus, and, and we were building building you know, and, and I would look at the groom and i would say i 'm going to make you sign a contract with me, and if you get divorced don 't worry about who 's going to get the house or the car i 'm going to get it and, and we 're going to build a church building with it and of course, at that point, the groom is looking terrified at me, and finally, I tell them i 'm kidding um, but no, marriage is a, is a covenant, and it 's it's, it's based on vows and, and that 's what this series is about. We are examining the vows that people make with each other before God and before the people that are important in their lives. And today we come to what I believe is the most beautiful of the vows. In fact, it, it might not only be the most beautiful of the vows, it might be the most definitive of the vows. And I, what's funny is we, when we have a wedding, we tend to gloss over these words. And my gut instinct is if you listen to this talk today, the next time you're at a wedding, you're going to think about this, this expression completely differently because you're going to find out that a word or a, or a phrase that we might have just let go through one ear and out the other is really one of the most important of all the vows, and here it is, to have and to hold. How many times have I stood before a man and said, will you have this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold until death do us part. Or I've asked a woman, will you have this man to be your lawfully wedded husband to have and to hold from this day forward until death do us part? Well, why is that so important? If you were to ask me a question today, a question that I get asked a whole lot in our culture today, what's the difference between just living together? and being married, Well, before I answer that question, I always feel an obligatory necessity to offer a cultural apology to all of you young adults from my generation, because my my generation, the baby boom, left you guys with a whole lot of debris we are what sociologists call the pig and the python. You know, our, 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 our parents went through the depression, they went through the war, and when, they, when, our, when our dads came home from the war, they made big families, and that is why the baby boom generation is so large and you can sort of watch it go through the culture that's why sociologists call it the pig and the python i was born in the median year or one of the median years of the baby boom 1956 and there are a whole lot of people my age and that's why we're so cotton picking annoying to all of you who are young there's just so cotton picking many of us but, but when we were young, when we were in our teen years in the late 60s and early 70s, we challenged all the societal norms, and not necessarily in a good way, frankly, in a bad way. We thought our parents were dumb. Man, most of the time we grew up spoiled because our parents raised us, you know, they've been through the Depression and the war, and they said, we didn't have all these things, and our kids are going to have it. So if you ever want to know why baby boomers are so stinking and sufferable, that is why we grew up spoiled. And instead of being grateful to our parents, we turned on our parents and basically flipped them off. And, and, that is, and then we decided we have better ideas for society. We had a great idea. We were going to go out in the park, put flowers in our hair, and dance around it and smoke dope. I mean, that's the way to have a great society. What's interesting is by the time we turned 30, we renamed our parents' generation. We called it the great generation because we realized they knew a whole lot we didn't know. But you know, here's the deal. My, my culture, my generation left all of you young adults with some really bad stuff. And one of the bad things that we left you with was a question about whether marriage was really important or viable. In my, in my day, we used to say, well, what's important about a piece of paper? If you love if you love somebody, wow, just, just move in together. You know, you don't need a piece of paper. And if the feeling's gone, then you move out and you separate and you find somebody else. And so a huge cultural apology to all of you young adults from my self-absorbed generation. But if someone were to come to me and say, Mark, be honest, what's the difference between just living together and being married? Well first and foremost, I would say vows, because you see, vows are very serious. The Bible says if you make a vow, you need to be serious about it. In fact, God said, look, you're better not making a vow at all than to make a vow and not keep it. So When you you stand before a minister or a judge or justice of peace or captain of a ship, when you stand before someone and you vow your affection in marriage, you are taking solemn vows before God. It's very serious. So I would say, yeah, vows would be the big one, but this specific vow more than any other. If you ask me what's the difference between just living together and being married, it is this vow, to have and to hold. Because you see, when a man stands across from a woman or a woman stands across from a man and they speak these words, to have and to hold, when that ceremony is over, they have a human being for the rest of their life to have and to hold. All right, Let me get functional with you for a few moments. What does it mean? Let's break it down. What does it mean to have? Well, at the risk of making some of you a little squeamish, let me just tell you, when when you say to have, it means to possess. Ah, somebody could say, that's why I don't want to get married. I don't want anybody to own me. I don't want anybody to possess me. Well, the reason why we say that, and and rightfully so, I understand why we say that, the reason why we say that, we're thinking in terms of a material possession, not a mutual possession. You know, if I have a material possession, I can do pretty much whatever I want to do with it. With my automobile, as long as I obey the laws, the traffic laws, I can do pretty much whatever I want to do with the automobile. With this shirt that I have on today, I can either wear it or burn it, and maybe I'd be better off burning it, I don't know. (laughs) but it belongs to me. And so when some of you hear that, you know, to have means to possess, you're saying, hey, wait a minute, Mark, I don't want that to happen. And and, and you're thinking about this, and I don't blame you a bit, I would think the same way. What you're saying is, I don't want somebody to own me and put me in a box and take me out and play with me. Or I don't want someone to own me and be a dictator and tell me what to do. That is the last thing that this means. Because you see, in mutual possession, You own your husband, and your husband owns you. You own your wife, and your wife owns you. It it all comes from the Bible. There's a beautiful verse in the Bible that says it this way. And by the way, you just sang it in a song a few minutes ago. In Song of Solomon 6.3, the lover said, I am my lover's, and my lover is mine. I belong to my lover." and my lover's is mine. You just sang that about Jesus a moment ago, because that's, that verse also is spiritually a reflection of our relationship with Jesus. We say, I, I am Jesus's, and Jesus is mine. So in marriage, to have means that you, you're mutually in possession of each other. I mean, I belong to Mary Alice, and Mary Alice belongs to me. Now, if I think about that last part, Mary Alice belongs to me, I could do what some husbands do. I could say, well, wait a minute. If my wife belongs to me, then she has to do what I tell her to do. If my wife belongs to me, she has to do what makes me happy. Now, we don't articulate that kind of stuff, but it's down in our gear work and our dark side somewhere. If he belongs to me, then he has to make me happy. It's incumbent upon him to make me happy. I married him for that reason. If I ever start feeling dictatorial because Mary Alice owns me, I need to remember something. I can't make demands on her like a slave owner because I belong to her. Isn't this weird? Isn't it wonderful? I mean, you have two people who belong to each other, and neither one of them are dictators, both of them in this relationship, by definition, are servants to each other. I belong to Mary Alice, and Mary Alice belongs to me. All right, we're, we're talking about what does it mean to have, it means to belong. So I started thinking about this in very practical terms, and again, I'm not just whipping up a sermon, I'm, I'm a husband, I've been a husband for 33 years, and, and so I started thinking about what does it mean that I belong to Mary Alice and Mary Alice belongs to me. First, firstly to me, it means I always have a place to go, I always have a place to go. I belong to Mary Alice. Ever been somewhere you didn't belong? Maybe you got an invitation to go somewhere, and when you got there, you thought, man, I don't belong here, it just doesn't feel, I don't feel like I belong. Or have you ever hung with a group of people and you just thought, I don't belong with these people? That happens to me sometimes. I live a very public life, I'm around people all over, I mean, as soon as this this afternoon is over, I'm gonna catch an airplane, I'll fly to Cincinnati, I'll be speaking before a group tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, I mean, I'm constantly surrounded by groups of people, every once in a while. I'll get invited to a place, and I just don't feel like I belong. By the way, I hope you feel like you belong at New Spring because you really, really do, okay? We're so glad to have you here. But have you ever been to a church where you just like didn't belong? You mean it's like, whoa, it feels kind of creepy in here. I don't feel like I belong. Let me me tell you this, whenever I'm in a place where I don't feel like I belong, I don't understand why exactly I have an insatiable desire to be with Mary Alice. If I'm with a group of people and I don't feel like I belong, instantly I crave being with Mary Alice, why? because with her, I always belong. To belong means you have a place to go. Secondly, it means I'm never lonely. You know, ever since I met Mary Alice, we both met in high school. I mean, and then we got married my senior year in college. We were high school sweethearts. I mean, we were soulmates. The, the, the great thing about Mary Alice is I'm never lonely. I always have somebody to tell my troubles to and always have somebody to share my joys with. And the, and the funny thing is my life has been full of joy. But if I don't have, if something good happens to me and Mary Alice isn't there to tell about it, it's instantly discounted by 75%. <laughs> about a decade or so ago. I was invited to Orlando, Well, I won't say Orlando, really it was Kissimmee, Florida, right down the street from Disney World, on the road to Disney World, where they have all the cheesy touristy stuff. Big church there. and The senior pastor and several of the pastoral staff met me at the airport, and they said, Mark, you're going to be speaking every night, you're going to be speaking on the weekend, we just want you fresh, we want your days to be your own. You're in Orlando, you're in the entertainment city of the world. They said, we're going to provide you with a really nice rent car, and here's the way we want your days to be. We're going to pay your expenses any place you want to go. You can go to any theme park. You can play all the golf you want to play. You know, And I'm thinking, Epcot, Disney World. I'm thinking, golf, man, that sounds great. The weird thing was I got to my hotel, and I thought, I don't really want to do any of that because Mary Alice wasn't there. Hate to admit that, but you know what the highlight of my week was? Sitting on the porch at Cracker Barrel for three hours, watching them change an electronic sign, here I am in the entertainment capital of the world with all expenses paid, and I didn't go anywhere because Mary Ellis wasn't there. Just how I'm wired. But the great thing about her is I'm never lonely. Call me corny if you will, but I'll never forget the first day I went to her house. I was still a junior in high school, and we'd only known each other for a few weeks. And we went to her, I went to her house and met her family and everything, we we're having lunch, and we walked into her living room and there was a piano. I didn't know she played the piano. Mariela is a great keyboardist. She's the best sight reader I ever saw in my life. I remember when we were in college, they would stick Bach in front of her and she would sit down and read through it like you and I would read through a book. But I asked her, I said, do you you play? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, play something for me. And the funny thing about it, we still talk about this. The first song she ever played for me was that wonderful James Taylor song that says, when you're down and troubled and you need some loving care and nothing, nothing is going right, close your eyes and think of me and soon I'll be there to brighten up your darkest night. You just call out my name and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, fall, all you have to do is call and I'll be there. You know." You've got a friend. It's been funny for all these years. That's sort of been the template of our relationship is that we've always had each other to fall back on. When I say to have, it means you're never lonely. And then it also means the relationship is exclusive. If I belong to Mary Alice, I don't belong to anybody else. And for anyone else to try to take me would be attempted theft because I belong to her. She has exclusive rights to me, and she belongs to me. I have exclusive rights to her. And then while we're just scrolling through these, let me add this one. If The fact that Mary Alice belongs to me means that I have the responsibility to take care of her and to meet her needs to have. All right, what does it mean to hold? Well, I think first off, it means to hold. You know, I'm a, I'm an, I'm a demonstrative person. I, I mean, when I meet people, it's, it's, it's normal for me oftentimes to hug people. So I, I hug thousands of people. But I've got to be honest, there's something very different about holding Mary Alice, and there is something very wonderful about being held by her. I'll be traveling, speaking somewhere, and be gone for several days, and I've got to be honest, what i look forward to is at the airport when Mary Alice picks me up, is just for her to embrace me, to hold me. Or, isn't it? I've flown a lot this year, and one of the things that I've watched, just like you watch, is a military couple. And there's a man or a woman who is about to go away to Afghanistan or Iraq, and you watch that last embrace, and it's almost too sacred to look at. Or better still, you watch that man or woman coming home and see that first embrace. And and you have to look at that and say, there's something very special about being held by the person you love the most. To hold. That means to hold. I think also it means to comfort. To comfort. If you've gone through hard times or you're having a bad day, just to be held by the person that you love the most. And by the way, you can hold someone with more than just your arms. Sometimes we hold people with our words. You know what it's like for many of you who travel a lot, you're road warriors, you're a thousand miles away from the person you love the most and, and you have a difficult, stressful day and you get on the phone and you just hear that voice and it's like that voice just reaches out and embraces you and holds you. Sometimes we hold people with deeds. Mary Alice is so good at She I mean, she's so busy, she like does two full-time jobs besides being a mom and a grandmother and, and all the things that she does, but Mary Alice is so good at just doing something. Out of the ordinary, and I look at that, and I, and I know she didn't have time, but I feel held by her deed. And then let's be real plain with each other. It means sex. Some of you, if you come from traditional church backgrounds, you're a little squeamish about talking about sex in church. And so you need to just take a real deep breath right now. <laughs> because not talking about sex in church is just Stupid. That's like telling Bill Gates he can't talk about Microsoft. It was not Madison Avenue or Hollywood that invented sex, it was God. And we talk about sex every place but church, so it's high time that we did. Isn't it interesting that the way God made us anatomically that sex is in the position of holding each other? And that's what it means, to have and to hold. To to hold, to comfort, and then ultimately sex. You can read this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife, and they become one flesh. Want the Hebrew on that? It's almost like the Holy Spirit knew there were some hyper-spiritual people that would say, oh, that's on a higher spiritual level. Then God just threw verse 25 in. The two of them, the man and his wife, were naked, and they felt no shame. God is saying, read my lips. <laughs> <laughs> to have and to hold. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? A man and a woman standing at an altar, pledging their love to each other. One of the first vows they say is, I take you to have and to hold. It's a beautiful picture, but unfortunately, it's a rare picture because you and I know culturally what's going on today half of all marriages end in divorce and that's why a lot of people have just given up on marriage and said hey I'm scared of marriage I'm just I'm just going to live with someone and 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 that's produced a whole different set of situations because in my parents generation 80 plus percent of all adults were married today it's less than 50% and it's dropping I think a lot of young adults are just looking at the problems of marriage of having and holding not working and saying I'm scared to get into marriage and then some of us know what it's like to have friends who are in a marriage but they're just going through the motions when I knew I was going to be talking to you about this vow there was one word that stood out to me above all the rest you say Mark was it to have to hold no I knew the most important word here The most important word is and, to have and to hold. Let me show you what I mean. One of the problems that we have today is we have people who hold, but they don't have. They're having sex, they're together, they're holding, but nobody belongs to anybody. I mean, it's like, wow, we're, we're getting together physically, but we don't, we don't have any vows here. I don't belong to her, and she doesn't belong to me. We're afraid to belong to each other, but we want to have sex so badly that we're going to do something just so that we can keep this going. Well, in the words of Eddie Murphy, is there a problem officer with that? Yeah, there is. Let me, let me tell you what the problem with it is. It's, it's deceptive, and, and the worst kind of deception is self-deception, and, and I think that... When, when, we, when we have sex with somebody that we don't have vows with, there's a deception going on. Let me explain what that deception is. It, it goes back to how the God designed this from the very beginning. When God designed sex, let's be real clear on this, it's two people who unite their bodies together. It's two people who become one physically. But the act of sex, of becoming one physically, was meant to be a physical representation of a spiritual oneness that has already happened. And and I I don't want to mess your mind up by comparing sex to baptism, but it is a principle that God often employs. What he does is he will show us something physical, a physical representation of something that is spiritual. When I talked to you about baptism, I said, remember, it's a physical demonstration. It is an external, visible demonstration of an internal, invisible commitment to God. Well, sex is meant to be part of the same kind of principle. When we get together physically and we become one physically, God meant for that to be a physical demonstration, a physical consummation of something that has taken place in our lives spiritually. We are one person spiritually. We demonstrate that by coming together and being one person physically. Well, when we come together and we're one person physically, and we don't have any vows, we've not we don't, we're not in a covenant relationship before God. We're afraid to do that because who knows? Maybe we won't work. Maybe the sex won't be good. Maybe some, at some point she's going to quit making me happy. And, but we're coming together physically. It's communicating something that's not real. And that's why when we have sex and we don't have vows, it leaves us feeling so empty. It may work physically. It may work sensually but it will never work emotionally and spiritually. Now for some reason I feel compelled to make a distinction because I know that not all of us mean the same thing. I mean if you're here today and you're having sex and you're not married, you could mean one of two things and I want to at least take a moment to make a distinction between the two. (laughs) At the the risk of being plain, I, I will just use currency terms to explain what I mean. It could be that if you're having sex without being married, you're counterfeiting. <laughs> Basically, you want sex, and, and chances are you're a guy, <laughs> but, but maybe not, <laughs> maybe not. You, you want sex, and you don't ever intend for it to go anywhere. That's like counterfeiting. You see, when, when people put down counterfeit money, they want, it to, they want it to appear to have some value, but they never intend for it to have any value, they just want something. So I'm going to keep it real here today. If you're having sex and you don't intend for it to go anywhere, you're just a counterfeiter. But most of us you know, here today, we, we wouldn't be like that. Chances are, you, instead of putting down counterfeit money, you're putting down a credit card. <laughs> you're saying, I think this is going to go somewhere. And I think sometime I'm going to make a commitment to you. And I really intend, and I do love you and I do care about you, but I just, I, we just need to wait a while and see. So, I'm gonna put down the credit card. I'm gonna put this on credit. Well, here's the problem with that. And sociologists tell us that among the five or so reasons why people get divorced, one of the primary reasons is cohabitation. See, we would think it would work just the opposite. We have the idea that if you cohabit, then you're gonna know whether it works. But there's a problem with cohabitation, and let me tell you what it is. We we never articulate this stuff, but there's there's real meaning behind it all. In cohabitation, what we're really saying is, I'm going to test you out to see if you please me. And the problem is, unless something changes that way of thinking, people sometimes go into a marriage, and even though they go through vows, they still have this concept of, well, I'll stay with you as long as you make me happy. I know what somebody would say. Come on, Mark, it's 21st century. Well, let me tell you what God says to all centuries. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17, the Bible says, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. That kind of sex can never become one. Let me tell you another reason why having sex without vows is not a good idea. And, and, and some of you who've been through this, you would, you would say, Mark, it's true. It's confusing isn't it? It's confusing. If you've ever been in a sex relationship where there wasn't vows, it's like you really don't know where you are, and here's why. There's a reason for that. Because with one hand, the person is pulling you close physically, but with the other hand, the person is holding you at arm's length emotionally. You don't know where you are. Am I close or am I being held far away? It's confusing. And Most of all, it won't work because it flips God off. God is the designer. He designed us to be married. He designed us to be together. So could I just say something to you in all love? And by the way, you say, Mark, I'm having sex right now and I'm not married. Are you taking a shot at me? That's the last thing I'm doing. I want want you to get help. What I I want to say to you is the the thing the Word of God says is your relationship needs to go one direction or the other. Either you need to say, okay, what we're doing is not right. It's not healthy. It's confusing. It's deceptive. We're going to stop this. Or it could be that you have found your soulmate. Very likely, in many cases, you have found the person who is to be your wife or your husband. And so one thing I've discovered through the years is that when you do the right thing, God has a marvelous way of bringing you quickly under the umbrella of his blessing. So all I'm saying is if you're having sex and you're not married, your relationship needs to go one direction or the other. Well, To hold but not have. Let's talk about the other one to have but not hold. You're married, but it's like two ships passing in the night. You're just business partners. Somewhere there's a wedding license, somewhere there's a white book with wedding pictures in it. There's a day on the calendar that you still go out to eat and sort of go through the obligatory motions of an anniversary celebration. But it's not healthy. Maybe you're just keeping up appearances. Or as I hear many people say, sadly, from time to time, you just stand together for the kids. I don't counsel anymore, but for many years I counseled hundreds of couples, and I would listen to couples, and I, and I would think to myself, I mean, these couples, they didn't start out this way. They started out in love. They started out hot. They started out passionate for each other. When they ran, out the, you know, ran down the aisle and the rice was coming down, they thought they would never be out of love, but here they are, and it's cold. How did it happen? Let me just tell you this, and I don't have a lot of time to develop this, but I've come to believe it happens primarily for two reasons, one of two reasons, if not both. And sometimes one after the other. Frankly, folks, I think it's just drift. I cannot tell you how many couples I've talked to through the years, and I said, how did you get here? I mean, you know, because clearly they're not, they're not getting along. They're not happy with each other. And I said, how did you get here? And, and they would look at each other quizzically as if we don't know how we got here. And then finally one of them would turn to me and say, well, we just drifted apart. Hey, well, Drift happens. Let me tell you how many it'll happen to if we don't work hard to keep it from happening. happening. Drift will happen to 100% of us who are married. You know why? Careers. Kids. Man, careers and kids are great. If your career takes off, glory to God. You have kids, awesome. But the problem is when you start having all these things happening, if you don't work hard to stay in each other's lives you're going to drift apart. When when the Bible talks about the plan for marriage, which, by the way, is in the book of Genesis, Jesus said it twice in the Gospels, it's once in in the church epistles. Whenever you find the same verse four times in the Bible, that's like God saying, really pay attention to this. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and cleave, is the old King James word, cleave to his wife, and they, they two shall become one flesh. Now, cleave is the operative word there. Cleave means to proactively become close. The Hebrew word means to glue. And here's the deal. If you're married and you don't work hard at staying each other's in each other's lives, you will drift. Mary Alice and I we have so much on our plate. We really work hard at staying each other's lives. I got to tell you, I watch Ina Garten. I didn't think I would ever do anything like that. I've learned all kinds of recipes. <laughs> Mary Alice loves Ina and I watch her. To me, it's not on the ESPN band. So but I love Mary Ellis. I'm in her world. She could probably name all 32 teams in the NFL. She doesn't care anything about it. That's a bizarre extreme, but we've worked hard at staying in each other's lives, and you gotta do that. You gotta do that. If not, you'll drift. You have to care about what the other person cares about. Here's the other one. It's a little controversial, so hang with me, please. Diversion. Diversion. You and I have passion, and God intends for us to express that passion for our soulmate. And when you, first, when you first meet each other, when you fall in love, I mean, you know, you've got that passion, and it just flows out, and it's just so natural. You want to be with her. You want to be with him. It's like, oh, man, I'm just so in love. But you know, there's a weird thing about getting married. Everybody's got complexities. Everybody's got idiosyncrasies. Everybody's got stupid stuff complicated stuff. Infatuation covers it up, marriage reveals it, only love can absorb it. But the problem is we get, we, we get together and all of a sudden, you know, after we get to know each other, we're living with each other, we're married, we're committed, all that irritating stuff comes out in the complexity and we're thinking, wow, I got deceived. I thought I was marrying somebody else and I got her. I thought I was marrying somebody else and I got him. And all of a sudden we realize it's very complicated living with this person. And what can happen is we have this passion, we have these needs, and we can be tempted to try to find some kind of shortcut to get these needs met, but without dealing with the complexity of being with a live human being. I want to give you two of the big diversions that I see today that's breaking up a lot of homes. One is porn, and primarily this is guys. I have a hard, honestly, guys, I have a hard time understanding porn. It's so cheap, it's so dirty, it's so sleazy. But the one thing I've discovered is a lot of guys who are hooked on porn. You know what they tell me? They tell me it's cheap and sleazy and dirty. And Mark, I hate it and I hate myself. But I can't, and, and, and they can't help themselves. And, and when I listen to them, they, they'll tell me it's like a drug addiction, and it really is a drug addiction. It's a natural drug in the brain. But but we'll save that for another day. Let's just ask the question: Why do guys get hooked on porn in the first place? it's because they want sex but if you have a healthy relationship with a real live woman that's going to involve some complexity one thing about a woman there's not a man in the world who understands a woman now one thing about women they understand each other i never can't quite get that they they get each other but for a guy man i'm going to tell you it's complicated if you want to have a real thriving hot relationship with a real live woman that's a challenge you're going to have to care about her you're going to have to understand that to a woman sex is much more than a physical act it's an emotional thing no woman is going to give her body cheerfully and happily and and freely to a guy that she doesn't believe is totally about her and cares about her more than the three minutes before he wants to have sex And so some guys just say, well, it's just too complicated. I'll just get on the computer. And this is both men and women today. But we're concerned about social networking. I was reading a statistic, a survey from the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, that's revealing that Facebook is now cited as a reason for one out of five divorces. I don't really think it's Facebook. I think Facebook is a symptom but what you often have is, is, is a woman is, is saying, I, I, man, my husband, I don't know what he's thinking. I don't even know if he's capable of thinking. I don't understand him. He's too complicated. The guys understand each other. They can just grunt and understand each other. But I don't understand him. He's just too difficult. He's too complicated. Hey, you know what? I can get my fix. I went to high school with this guy. We'll get on the internet. We're going to chat for a few moments. It doesn't mean anything. It's a shortcut. I can get my emotional fix. But I don't have to deal with a real life person. I think you know God intended for something very different. See, as I close out this talk, I I think the order is exactly right. To have and to hold. God intends for you and me, those of us who are married, God intends for us to have a red hot sex life that flows out of a relationship. That to have part, that mutual possession that we belong to each other, we have this sense of oneness, and out of that sense of oneness comes a red-hot relationship. I mean, by the way, you know, for, for all of you who grew up in traditional churches where you didn't talk about sex in church, you need to understand that God talks about it a whole lot. Let me me read you one of my favorite texts in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 7, 3. It says, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. The wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives, this is the mutual ownership thing. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. The husband gives authority over his body to his wife. And a lot of you are going to love verse 5. You're going to love it so much you're going to want to have it embossed in gold on the front of your Bible. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations. Do you know this in the Bible? Some of you are going to start coming to church more just after hearing that. Unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And if you ever go to a whack church, church of Corinth was totally whacked. They were all messed up. And evidently, there were some people in the church of Corinth who were married, and instead of saying, not tonight, dear, I have a headache, they were saying, not tonight, dear, I'm in a time of prayer. And, and is, don't you find it interesting that the Bible said, go ahead and have your time of prayer, but you need to break it up and then get back to being with each other. That's what God says about sex. I mean, and, and boy, Song of Solomon gets really graphic. Song of Solomon 2:6, his left hand cradles my head, his right arm encircles my waist. And guys, listen, if you want to know how to make your wife feel loved, you ought to take a page out of Song of Solomon 7. Listen to this guy talk to his wife. This is in the Bible. Your beauty within and without is absolute, dear lover, close companion. You are tall and supple like the palm tree, and your full breasts are like sweet clusters of dates. I say, I'm going to climb that palm tree. I'm going to caress its fruit. Do you want the Hebrew on that? I'll give it to you. And I love this. Your beauty is too much for me. I'm in over my head. Oh, that is a line. I'm not used to this. I can't take it in. And then he says, your hair flows and shimmers like a flock of goats in the distance streaming down the hillside in the sunshine. I'm guessing something has been lost over the last 3,000 years. I wouldn't try that one. And then he says, your smile is generous and full, expressive and strong and clean. Your veiled cheeks are soft and radiant. There's no one like her on earth, never has been, never will be. She's a woman beyond compare. My dove is perfection. Do you think she was perfection? I doubt it. But this guy wanted his wife to feel perfect. He understood wisely. Oftentimes women are a little bit insecure about their appearance. And he said, my babe is perfect. And how does she react to him? (laughs) Well, it takes us right back to where we started. Song of Solomon 7.10. I am my lovers. I'm all he wants. I'm all the world to him. And that's how it's supposed to work to have, and to hold. I'll bet you'll never listen to that line the same again in a wedding, (laughs) will you? (laughs) Father, thank you for the privilege of being here today and for what we've learned. God, I pray for every marriage here, especially maybe some that have been a little strained because uh, they have, but they don't hold. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll just fire, stoke up the fire and bring them back to the place where they fell in love and, Let them have that sense of belonging to each other. And God, I pray for those who might be here that are holding but not having. They're they're, they're in sex work, but they feel that that it's not really fulfilling. So God, I pray you give them direction. Know the next steps to take in their lives and help us all, Lord. Thank you for letting us be here today. God, would you bless every mom. Help them to know how loved and appreciated they are. Thank you for putting the spirit of motherhood in the heart of so many women. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.